Well, y'all, thanks for, for letting us uh, do a little networking before the meeting, and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. So again, my name is uh, Chad Warmington. I'm president of the state chamber, and again, thank you for being here. And again, thanks again to Pharma for hosting this and uh, being a guest as well. Our, um, our two speakers today are uh, Scott Laganga from uh, Pharma, who's the senior vice president of state advocacy for Pharma, uh, and Courtney Warming Warmington, is that how you pronounce it? Warmington who is the partner at uh, Fuller Tub, Bickford, <laughs> Warmington, and Panic. And just so you know, she was vice chair of our committees before I got the job, so there's not a bunch of nepotism going on. So uh, is that right, Madam Chair? Kristen, you want to back me up? Okay, good. So, so uh, thank you, Courtney, for being here as well. So Scott and Courtney, we're uh, excited to get started, and um, we will kick it off. And Scott, I think you are going to lead the way. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Chad. And uh, I know I had a couple of slides I thought would be helpful from a from a framing exercise for everybody. And um, not only looking forward to the conversation and certainly uh, laying out some of our thoughts and where we are and, and hearing everyone's thoughts earlier just about what they miss uh, certainly hits home, I think, for everyone right now. So, um, so with that, I wanted to take just a few moments. And first of all, I wanted to thank uh, the uh, Oklahoma Chamber Chad and, and team um, for the opportunity uh, for me to uh, present at this point and to really kind of talk about where we are as an industry and what that means as we go forward. Um, and it's really a pleasure to be with all of you. I mean, uh, to be quite honest, I'm a guy originally from New Jersey, so my connections to the Sooner State are, uh, are fairly light. Uh, but I do have to say many years ago, um, I did work with your current Lieutenant Governor, Matt Pinnell in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, we worked very closely together. He's a great guy, and I hear he's doing wonderful things around tourism and driving Oklahoma tourism. Um, I know something that you're going to be discussing at a future chamber event. So nonetheless, um, I really do appreciate the time and, and look forward to the conversation um, in ways that a New Jersey guy can contribute to an Oklahoma conversation. So, um, But, uh, you know, listen, as you just talked about in the breakup rooms, all of us really have had this unprecedented year, uh, and the biopharmaceutical industry, quite candidly, is no different. Um, I've had the privilege of, of not just working with the industry, but actually growing up with it back home in New Jersey. And I can say that this has really been a moment in time that I've never been prouder of what we've done and what this industry has done collectively, along with all the healthcare frontline workers and professionals around the globe. Uh, our members have turned their focus to the fight to return communities back to normal, getting business back open um, as we battle the pandemic, both in our laboratories in the U.S. and around the world. And their goal collectively remains to bring as many vaccines and treatments to market to treat COVID, as well as what I think a lot of people forget about, there's a lot of other disease that's going on simultaneously right now. And none of that research and work and clinical research has, has stopped during this time. Um, we now have more than 8,000 medicines in the pipeline across a variety of disease areas. Many of them are first in class. That is the most promising when you don't have a product in a, in a therapeutic area, and we may have the first time one. Uh, and so there's more hope than ever that we're going to see some more amazing advances in the next few years. So if you go to the next slide, let me first touch on the industry's commitment to beat COVID um, and what our companies have focused on really kind of four key areas. The first is testing. Uh, many of our members have actually stepped up to increase testing. We all know if you don't know who has it or doesn't, it's much more difficult in terms to navigate this environment because of the silence that this disease has in a way that we haven't seen by most others. Secondly, our companies have been repurposing the existing medicines from their company libraries. You've heard a lot of these stories, things like 
uh, Gilead's product, Remdesivir, is an antiviral. Immunologic agents, anticoagulants, a lot of the issues that are uh, debilitating to the body and how the body responds as an immune system, uh, we've looked at repurposing that existing library to see what can be used and pulled off the shelf and used in a different purpose. And that's a great starting point. But they've even gone further to develop new medicines. You've heard about monoclonal antibodies. This is actually Lilly's product that's derived from the first COVID patient in the United States. Uh, and so the science is just tremendous, um, but it even goes as far as now we're looking at enriched plasma and those direct transfusion of blood plasma to help patients, particularly those in the most critical state. Lastly, the area you all are, everyone's become an expert, right, in the biopharmaceutical industry pretty quite quickly is developing an actual vaccine. And we'll discuss this more in a bit, but products developed in record time without cutting any corners. And I think that's really important as business leaders and as the industry to make sure that we educate folks about what really happened in drug discovery here. Uh, with 90% effectiveness and with a lot of additional vaccine candidates near the finish line, so a, a great deal of promise. Similarly, not only do our companies have key results, but we're well positioned to succeed in a few key areas. The first, we have deep scientific knowledge. This has been gained of the decades of experience around similar viruses, including SARS, MERS, influenza, HIV, Hep C, the list goes on and on. Infectious disease is something to greatly learn from and then apply in other areas. Secondly, the industry invested billions in technologies that really did dramatically shorten the time frame, the decoding that took place. Uh, Dr. Fauci speaks to this in great deal where he says it took 20 months for us to have a vaccine ready uh, for SARS patients a decade ago. And it only took a couple of months to have the first candidates to test against coronavirus, which was a tr tremendous turnaround time and inevitably led to that speed and efficacy we've seen. Third, companies alone have the ability to manufacture at the sophistication levels that they have to for these products. And our industry actually expanded unique manufacturing capabilities and ramped up production capacity early. So they were prepared for if they had a candidate. And in many cases, they were doing this at risk before even knowing if they had a candidate. I'm sure as business leaders, you can imagine that's not really good business policy to make those kinds of investments and not know if you're gonna have something, but at the heart, they knew that speed and effectiveness was gonna be critical if we were gonna get out of the pandemic as quickly as possible. So if you go to the next slide, we know we've heard a lot of questions and, and all of you are facing as well about vaccine safety, right? So we wanna deal with it head on. To those questions, it really is important we emphasize a few key points around safety and efficacy. First and foremost, no shortcuts taken in developing these. These candidates for COVID-19 had to meet the same standards for clinical trials as other vaccines, including large scale testing and phase three clinical trials. So these are the 30,000, 40,000 participants that you all heard going into sort of October that ultimately led to the, uh, the approvals of those emergency use authorizations. Second, our companies are committed to the gold standard of the FDA. FDA is the best in the world, period. It is the best regulatory agency. It has the highest uh, re review requirements and it is the model by which others follow. And in fact, our company said, we need to go further than that and pledge not to even submit to the FDA any of their phase three data until it was complete. They could have stepped ahead and there was a lot of pressure as I know you've all heard of how quickly these vaccines come to market. But our company said they have to be done correctly and with the all clinical data uh, uh, finished. Third, our companies welcome the additional guidance from the FDA. Um, we took some unprecedented steps to share clinical trial protocols and recruiting updates 
actually in real time. This is that's a new way of doing things. The virus the the virus created new opportunities for faster drug discovery because of those speed issues. And in addition to sharing the data with the regulators, we're also sharing it among our manufacturers. So there was a lot of best practices that were applied as well as public institutions and academia. We didn't just keep it to ourselves. They're sharing it wide and far for also a great deal of critical review and making sure peer review work was done to, to uh, solidify it. And then lastly, you know, vaccine, vaccine safety continues to be monitored even after the emergency use authorization. And so uh, our companies will work closely with FDA and CDC to make sure there's no adverse events. And if there are, how do we then measure to make sure that they are attributed either to the vaccine, which we've seen very limited data on at this point, uh, or to other issues that are maybe pre, you know, pre-existing conditions or the like. So finally, I, I, we recently issued a statement urging governments to really kind of stick to the dosing and vaccine schedules. I know a lot of you have heard folks trying to accelerate and how to move product quicker or interchange or even change the scheduling. And we know the sense of urgency everyone has, but it is, now is not the time to defy the clinical evidence. We want to stick to the science and we want to do this right. And the manufacturing capacity, as we've seen, uh, has not been a problem to that point. And so on this slide, I'm very happy to report that our industry for the first time ever released clinical trial diversity principles. This is really important. We recognize that the clinical trial recruitment and participants, they have to reflect the treatment populations. And what COVID showed us is it disproportionately impacted communities of color across the entire country. And that our trial should have diverse participants. And that's not just by race, that's gender, that's age, very medical backgrounds. So this is not only good for society, but it really helps us further advance our collective goal to get the economy back to work. We need to be looking at all the issues associated. On the next side, um, here we show the promise on the horizon. Uh, globally, number of clinical trials is over 1,700. Um, most of those trials today are focused on investigational therapies to fight the virus once infected. You all know about the vaccine candidates, but we're really looking at the investigational therapies to combat it. We all know about the two vaccine EUAs, uh, emergency use authorizations that occurred in December by Pfizer and Moderna. There are two more that are coming up very close based on their final phase three data, um, which should be ready for FDA review soon. I anticipate J&J uh, &J will be up for FDA review in, uh, in the next month, along with, with the hopes of a March rollout. Um, many are, you know the promise associated, it's a one dose shot. It has a different kind of design and uh, uh, maintenance that's required to keep it um, stable. And then AstraZeneca, you've heard as well, uh, has already had a UK approval, but uh, is up for uh, FDA review in the coming weeks uh, too. So the hope is in February and into March, you're gonna be looking at two additional candidates with large scale production. Uh, I'd be happy to also note that Oklahoma has a great deal of clinical trial work that's going on in the state. And, uh, there's nine clinical trials directly in the state. And so it, it's back home for all of you as well. And that data really does help uh, the rest of the country and the world. Go to the next slide. Now, the initial concern by many was that we weren't going to be able to manufacture the vaccine quick enough. We heard that a lot. Hey, is it going to go quick enough? Are you going to have enough supply uh, based on, on demand? We now know this isn't the case. Uh, actually, our attention has shifted to getting shots in the arm as quickly as possible, what we call the last inch, right? How do we do that as effectively as possible? And what you see here, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but just to give you some idea of how trials and manufacturing feed into that FDA emergency use authorization. The manufacturers prepare that uh, within a day or so of shipping. Many cases, millions of doses were already manufactured in preparation. 
the federal government has then contracted for a number of doses for each state based on a formula that they've calculated on population needs that each state government submitted to the CDC. So the state said, this is what we think, and this is based on the protocols. Here's how much we'll need in these phases over this time horizon. And then federal government is contracting to move that product accordingly. The distributors then transport it to these points of dispensing or the pods and the pods are everything such as pharmacies or hospitals and now we're seeing stadiums and clinics we're seeing much more wider spread utilization of different sites. And then ultimately that safety monitoring and pharmacovigilance Let's keep that going with the FDA and CDC post uh, time so really important, um, but the process is important because I know a lot of questions come around it and, and people do wonder what how does this all work. Um, and certainly it is complicated, but the goal is to simplify and streamline it as quickly as possible. We go to the next slide. Beyond log logistical challenges, we all know people are still very concerned, right? Uh, vaccine hesitancy is a major hurdle. It's one we all take very seriously. And if we wanna get business back to work quickly and safely, we have to be focused on this vaccine hesitancy issue. And so we're working with a number of different partners right now about getting confidence out with groups like the Partnership to Fight Infectious Disease through their vaccination campaign, uh, Research America, the National Governors Association has played a greater role because governors have been the front line in getting this done. And aside from the discovery of the vaccine, the mass and rapid manufacturing of the novel product and global distribution to get it into humans, vaccine hesitancy may be the next most important item we have to combat. And, and it really is important because if people want to, as I heard in the breakout rooms, not wear a mask at the end, this is the item we have to get over in order to make sure people uh, are immunized and, uh, and, and get to that point. So the last slide, let me just say, I, uh, you know, as we look through and, and think about it, we know that many people are economically stressed right now as well, and we have a role to play in that. Uh, many of our companies are expanding their assistance programs to help more people. The medicine assistance tool that you see on the left is a web platform that our companies have built tell patients, caregivers, healthcare providers, and others learn more about resources to help them and assist in the affording of their medicines. Uh, but only so much can be done by tools like this and just directly by the companies. Uh, what we agree with is that for many Americans, the health system really isn't working and it needs to change. Uh, while medical innovation has made the, U the US a world leader and this vaccine effort has really shown that, the treatments don't benefit patients if they can't get them. And so that's something we're putting a greater focus on and so while there are no easy solutions, we think patients need real leadership when everyone's involved in the healthcare system to make it work better. Our companies have actually been much more active in advancing some real common sense reforms uh, to make insurance work like insurance again and ensure that patients can afford the medicines that doctors prescribe. And that's something that we're working in states all across the country, including Oklahoma. Now, I know I covered a great deal um, I, and I assume you may want more information. So we did, we did link to our site on the right uh, which has all the efforts around regarding our fight against COVID. I certainly encourage you to use that site for any outreach that you're doing for your folks and your, uh, and your employees. And with that, uh, Chad and team, thank you again for the opportunity. I look forward to the questions. You bet. <clears throat> Thanks, Scott. Appreciate that. And that dovetails nicely into our uh, next uh, uh, speaker. Courtney's going to talk about uh, the employee-employer relationship around uh, the vaccine and some of those other issues. Courtney, take it away. All right, thank you. So I've got five points to cover in 10 minutes. And like most lawyers, uh, I've got a lot to say. So we'll jump right in with point number one, which is, can we 
require our employees to receive the COVID-19 vaccine? The answer is yes, but you have to be ready to deal with a couple of things. The first is you have to be ready to make accommodations for employees who say that they are unable to take the vaccine based on uh, some sort of a disability. So you gotta be ready for that. And the second thing is you have to be ready for those who say they have a religious belief that conflicts with taking the vaccine. Now, most employers are familiar with the process when it comes to disabilities. It's called the interactive process. And you sit down and you have a dialogue with the employee about what the disability is and whether or not you can make an accommodation. So a lot of employers are very familiar with what that looks like. Not as many employers are familiar with the latter, which is religious accommodation. It just doesn't come up quite as often. So for those of you who may not be familiar or haven't dealt with it in a long time, I'll just remind you that the definition of religion uh, under our employment laws is extremely broad. It can include beliefs, practices, and observances that are completely unfamiliar to you. Um, totally uncommon and in fact even uh, can seem quite odd. If I had more time, I would tell you about my first religious accommodation case about 20 years ago in which an employee said that wearing deodorant was against her religion. And I was a baby lawyer, so I thought, well, that can't possibly be the case. Um, I will just tell you, suffice to say, it did not end well for the employer who wanted to challenge the sincerity of, of that as a religious belief. So. Uh, the bottom line is, you know, you can ask for documentation, even with uh, the religious accommodation. The EEOC says that's fine, uh, but good luck trying to, to challenge that. So can you require it? Yes, you can, but you do need to be ready to make accommodation in both of those circumstances for either disability or, uh, or religious belief that conflicts with taking the vaccine. So you can. But unless you're in healthcare, I think the better question being asked right now by employers is, should we? You know, not, not can we require it, but should we require it? At this point, uh, the majority of non-healthcare employers are not going to require it based on the latest data. Uh, a survey uh, from the Society of Human Resource Management uh, very recently, a couple weeks ago, said that 61% of the employers polled were not going to require it, but instead they were just going to uh, encourage it. Um, you know, and, and again, and, uh, different for healthcare. Healthcare, absolutely, but I'm talking really just to the non healthcare employers. I think a number have just said it's not worth really the hassle to require it. Um, some employers feel that it seems a little bit heavy handed at this point as well to require it, and they would rather encourage and incentivize it instead. There's also a lot of preliminary data to suggest that employees want to get the vaccine anyway. So I think employers are looking at it and saying, you know, if, if the number of employees get it that we think are going to get it, we really don't have to require it because a lot of employees are, are really, uh, at least at this point, indicating that they want to get it uh, when they are able. So the question then that brings me to point number three that I've been asked more than any other is, all right, if we're just going to encourage it, then how do we lawfully do that? What are ways that we can incentivize and encourage uh, that are lawful? And the number one thing I've seen so far is employers are saying, look, if you provide evidence that you, uh, or documentation that you've received both doses of the vaccine, then we'll just relax the PPE requirements uh, in, our, in our office. So that will look different depending on what your PPE protocols are and what your comfort level is and, and how many employees you have and what kind of proximity they are to each other. So there are a lot of different factors that will come into play. 
but it could be things like, you know, relaxed social distancing, uh, no masks, um, you know, no gloves. I mean, there could be a number of things, but a lot of employers are looking at relaxed PPE um, or relaxed protocols for those who do show proof of having both vaccinations. Others are giving paid time off to get the vaccine. So um, if an employee needs to do it during working hours um, and is able to do so, uh, giving a certain number of, of time off, uh, hours of time off to do that. Uh, I noticed recently Dollar General had an interesting approach. Uh, they decided to give every one of their 150,000 employees uh, one-time payment equal to four hours of PTO. Um, so, and again, upon evidence of, of um, having received the doses of the vaccine. So um, that was just one way that they wanted to kind of give a bonus in essence to those uh, who, who wanted to take it and provided proof of doing it. The only thing I'd say here, just a, just a word of caution is, again, you have to be prepared to maybe make accommodation for those who say, look, you know, I, I wish I could get the vaccine, but I've got some sort of a medical condition where my doctor advises against it. Um, you, you know, you may need to make some accommodation when it comes to uh, paid time off and other terms and conditions of employment. Now, I don't think you have to give someone relaxed PPE uh, who says that they can't take the vaccine due to uh, some sort of a disability. That would be an undue burden on the employer. But if, if someone comes forward and says, look, I would be entitled to the four hours of PTO time, basically, but for the fact that I have a disability that does not allow me to take the vaccine, you're going to have to be prepared to kind of walk through that analysis with the employee and decide whether or not they're entitled to the same, same thing. So it's just something to be thoughtful about. Uh, but those are just some of the ideas I've seen so far. I think as it evolves, employers will come up probably with some other ways to incentivize. But those are the ones that, that I've seen uh, most talked about, at, at least at this point. So if you do decide to encourage it um, and you come up with your incentives, the next question is, well, where should the employee get it? And there are a lot of considerations about, do we want to provide the vaccine on site? Um, you know, we heard in the last presentation a little bit of a discussion about that. And my breakout group, I, I heard from a large employer in Oklahoma who said they want they want to try to work to be a location who can host a, a host site for the vaccination. Um, and yeah, some employers are doing that, um, working with uh, state and local health authorities to become closed point of dispensing sites to administer the vaccine to their employees and their family members. Um, others are, that I've talked to are even looking into potentially becoming a host site for, for the community at large. Uh, you can absolutely do that. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons why an employer might want to. In fact, I think uh, the larger the employer, the more likely it makes sense to potentially have it on site. Uh, but there are some things I want you to consider if you're going to do that. Uh, some liability related issues. The first is, do you have fully trained medical professionals? Um, who will be on site not only to handle the vaccination, but also any kind of adverse reaction that might occur. So that'd be the first thing I'd be asking if you called me and said, we're gonna do on-site vaccines. I'd be asking you that question. The second is, and, and I don't think this is certainly not a reason not to do it, but you wanna think through things like if a person has an adverse reaction or an injury um, on site during an employer provided vaccine, um, would that fall under work comp? I think there's a good argument it would. Again, not a reason not to do it, but just something I'd want you to be thoughtful about. 
Um, the other is, and, and a lot of employers are starting to talk about whether or not they would qualify for immunity. Uh, there is a law called the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. Um, I have not looked into that much yet, but I will be doing so in the coming weeks because I think a lot of employers are wondering what kind of immunity provisions may be in it for those who wanna host uh, uh, the vaccine on, on location. The other thing I'd be asking you is, how good is your waiver? Um, you need a waiver, employees need to sign it, and it needs to be, uh, it needs to be a good one. Um, the only other issues involved are potentially uh, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and then GINA, which is not a very commonly known uh, law, but it is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And what the EEOC is saying is that if the employer does the vaccine on site, the vaccine in and of itself is not a medical exam. So the, the administration of the vaccine is not a medical exam, but the medical professionals who are administering the exam have to ask some pre-screening questions. And those pre-screening questions are in fact a medical exam under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So what does that mean? Well, if you're doing it on site, you are administering the vaccine, you will need to walk through that ADA analysis and the GINA analysis um, and, and think about things like, look, is are these questions that we're asking job related and consistent with business necessity? Are we asking any questions that are going to reveal genetic information about the employee or their medical history? Um, so I, I say that not to discourage it, again, because I think there are many reasons why some employers, it will absolutely make sense to want to partner with state and local health authorities to be a vaccination site. And again, I think the larger the employer, the more that makes sense. Uh, but I think there will be some employers who will just say, you know, that's, that's more than we want to handle and it's more than we want to deal with. And so uh, we'll probably just refer employees out to, to offsite locations and third party locations. Um, so those are just some things to think about. Um, neither one is wrong. I think the key point is that employers that I'm working with are trying to do their best to make sure that employees know where they can go. Um, and, and I think it remains to be seen once the vaccine is more readily available, how many employers will actually choose on site. And I think some will, but those are just some things to think about. So um, finally, I would just say, once you decide what your policy is going to be, how do you communicate and develop that to, to uh, employees? I've been asked the question a number of times, do we need a policy? I think it depends on what your position is. If you're gonna require it for employees, you absolutely need a policy. You absolutely need it. You have to talk about exceptions for reasonable accommodation due to disability or um, religious reasons. If you're going to just encourage it, um, you could do a policy, you could do something less formal. You could do, I've done a memo for a couple of clients. I've done a very detailed email for a couple of clients. But the key is that you just wanna communicate um, what your stance is on the issue as an employer. You wanna be a good resource for your employees. There's so much information going around and there is still a lot of confusion on where to go, how you sign up, how you get in, when it's available, what phase are you in? And I think the more employers can try to be just a good resource for truthful, um, factual, trustworthy information for their employees, the better. And, and do what we can to make it easy so that, it's, that, that there aren't a lot of burdens on employees who do need to, to have what, you know, whatever they need, time off, et cetera, to go uh, get the vaccine. 
Um, and of course, if you are going to incentivize and give benefits to employees who receive it, then of course you want to make that clear as well. So whew, those are my five points. I went through them pretty fast, but those are the, really the biggest ones that that we are getting questions about right now, um, which is just, you know, can we, should we, how do we, where, and, and how do we tell employees, um, you know, what our, what our policy is. So happy Great. to take Thanks, any Scott. questions. You bet, as well. Scott and Courtney. I got a got a question or two, and then quick reminder: we're doing a little door prize for everybody. So, but as always, you must be present to win. So don't leave before we before we announce it. And I'm looking at a couple of you who may already be winners. Um, so hey, real quick, this is a question that I think actually cuts across both of your areas. So what if an employee wants the vaccine, uh, but not the RNA vaccine due to the new technology that may not be proven? Can you still force that employee to get the vaccine? So I think both of you can approach it. Scott, you can maybe talk about the RNA side of it and then Courtney, um, you know, the employer, the employee question side. So uh, let you, Scott, take a, take a first crack at that. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I would, I mean, yeah, certainly Courtney is going to be best to sort of talk about um, the uh, the sort of employee the employer side of it. I would say, from my perspective, um, I, I think there the education and getting folks on the right page about what we have out there right now is actually the first right step. So I would almost say the reticence that may be around something that they almost would view as unproven um, is actually not the case right now. mRNA is a decade old. The only difference of why we were able to see it come through was because of the of the manner of which uh, we dealt with this disease and the way in which it came about and the decoding that occurred so quickly that then allowed the technology to finally be unleashed for it. It wasn't as though this is some new thing that just came up last week and people should be nervous about it. And that goes to its effectiveness. Most vaccines, as you all know, are about 50 to 55, 60% is usually the annual flu vaccine. When you're at 90, 94% effectiveness, uh, there should be no questions in terms of safety and efficacy. And uh, so I think first step would be trying to affirm with them that whatever vaccine you can get right now in limited supply, you should get. I wouldn't wait until the next one uh, being a different type. That's the important first step. But Courtney, you can probably speak to the other better than I. Yeah, the answer is if you decide that your workplace is going to be one that requires the vaccine for employees and you have someone who says, I just don't trust the mRNA, it's too early, I, I don't like it yet, you don't, that's not something you have to accommodate. Um, the only thing, in other words, you can, uh, well, I wouldn't force someone to ever take a vaccine, but you can have, um, you can have discipline, uh, potentially even up to termination for someone who just says, I don't want to do it because I don't trust it and I don't like it. That's different than I can't take it because of a disability or it conflicts with my religious beliefs. So the only thing that an employer has to actually accommodate are those two latter things. Having said that, I think the, that is a great question because it highlights why most employers are not requiring it at this point in, in the non-healthcare context. Most employers are saying, look, we recognize there are a lot of people who are still a little bit nervous and they wanna take the vaccine, but they kind of wanna wait just a little bit to see um, how it, it gets rolled out, what the adverse reactions are. They wonder what these other ones coming down the road will, will look like. And people just have different views on it. And so I think that's why a lot of employers are saying, we're just gonna really encourage it and incentivize it, but not require it. But, but to go back to the original question, just a, I don't, I don't trust it, I don't like it, 
is not something an employer actually has, has to accommodate. Great. Got, uh, certainly if anyone else has questions, throw it in the chat real quick. I got another one that I, that I thought was kind of interesting too. Um, is it going to be okay to ask meeting or conference attendees at the time of their registration for an event, uh, whether they've been vaccinated or not? I'm going to throw that one to Courtney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's an interesting one. Um, and it really will be interesting to see how this unfolds, uh, not just with meeting events, but um, I think we'll see a lot on this with respect to travel eventually as well. But from, from my perspective, if it's not an employee issue, if it's just the general public, you've pretty much got, you know, wide latitude to ask the questions you want to ask uh, when you have someone coming in for an event. You know, anytime I go somewhere now, anywhere, I'm filling out probably about a one, one or two pager about, you know, where I've been and who I've been exposed to and what my temperature is. And so that's pretty common. And I, and I think you can do that. Um, as it relates to in, in, uh, employees, uh, the EEOC has been very clear so far, and, and they could change their mind, but so far what they've said is you can ask. You can ask if they've been vaccinated. Um, it's the, because the vaccine itself is not considered a medical exam. It's when you're asking other medical questions uh, related to the vaccine that you get into questions of job-related and consistent with business necessity, and that can trip you up. But in general, I think the answer is yes, you can ask. Great. Guys, give another second or so here for questions, or if you have a question, you don't want to type it in, you know, raise your hand real quick, but um, we can open it up or just unmute yourself and ask real quick if you if you got a question. I think I'm on. Um, so Courtney, uh, Thomas Schneider with the AG's office, legal counsel unit. One of the, I think, big questions that I'm looking at in, you know, advising my clients on not only the vaccination issue, but also kind of the back to work issue. And, you know, what's that, what are your kind of best practices or best advice on kind of bridging that vaccination, but bringing people back to work and then also what does the PPE and social distancing look like? So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because I think we're gonna see um, not a high concentration of vaccinated people, but I think we're gonna start seeing a bigger push to get more people back into our state buildings um, or just you know making it more general into our employment um, locations, but also you know, we will still probably need to have some type of PPE and social distancing protocols. Yeah, it's, those are all, um, make sure I'm unmuted, yeah. Um, great questions with not great answers yet, unfortunately. I mean, but those are the exact same questions I'm hearing lots of employers ask. And it really does depend, I think, a lot on the, very individualized assessment of the particular workplace. Um, you know, there, there are some uh, employers I'm working with who can still and still intend to have for a while people working from home, 
Um, and so they're less concerned about a vaccine protocol and, and kind of pushing it. Um, it. I have others who say, we, we want everybody back in the office or some who have um, really never had everyone out of the office and, and have really had most people still working there. Um, but some employers can socially distance more than others. And so, um, you know, that is something that is so individualized that everyone's kind of struggling with what does it actually look like in the end. The other thing that I think is interesting and that I've been watching too is what are the recommendations going to be from the CDC and others about how much PPE should still be required even with the vaccine. Um, and I, I see some conflicting things on that right now. Um, so for example, I do have an employer um, that I worked with who we wrote a policy last week that said after they have uh, evidence of receiving both vaccinations, first dose and second dose, um, that they're gonna, you know, they're gonna drop their social distancing requirements in the office and are not gonna require uh, masks. Um, you know, some, and I, and I think you can do that. I think some employers are still saying they're not, they're not sure if they're comfortable with no masks once you get the second dose. So it's a long and not very definitive answer, a lawyer answer, which I hate giving, but um, it's, it's a tough one. People are really struggling with, with what do we do bringing people back to work with a partially vaccinated workforce. Um, and I think it really, really just depends on the configuration of your individual office offices, how many people you have, the kind of work that's being done. From one lawyer to another, I appreciated it. It depends. <laughs> yes, worst <laughs> legal answer ever and, and common one. Chet, go ahead. I know, Chet, you had a question. I think you're unmuted now. Yeah, I, I, I typed it in, but I'd, I'd rather ask it. Uh, when we were talking about what Scott was talking about, vaccine hesitancy i've really perked up there because i know that that's our uh, it's going to be a big issue for us i think uh we're we're looking for to get a certain percentage of our people through this and, and we know if we don't get it at least a certain percentage that, that we've got in mind that that covid hangs on uh and so is there any is there is there a website or any place i can go to to get information more information that would help convince those people that, that, that have issues or are sitting on the fence about this? Yeah, I'm, uh, Chad, thanks for the question. I think um, a, a few of the sites, which we'd be happy to share too with uh, Chad and the team um, that I mentioned earlier, the Partnership to Fight Infectious Disease has, has a major campaign right now called Vaccination um, and a major push around the country. So we'll share that information with you along with Research America. You know, I think as we all know, and the importance, and you all know this from, from an on the ground standpoint, you can have lots of national campaigns and lots of groups that are trying to drive this discussion, but the only way it truly uh, effectuates change is when it comes from the ground up based on people knowing each other are doing it. And that comes from who you know and how you operate. And so we're spending, we're trying to spend a lot more time better understanding on the ground in certain states, how are people thinking about it and who do they listen to? as it relates to it, not just trying to impose on them, hey, here are all the benefits to getting vaccinated, but actually here are your friends, colleagues, churchgoers and the like are all thinking about it right now and here's what they're doing. Um, so we are doing a lot of research right now on vaccine hesitancy and understanding how the population's thinking about it. 
Uh, but I think then as well, we're going to take that and look to local communities and local partners on a state by state basis, as we talked about with folks like the National Governors Association, to work with governors to figure out what how to make it best happen in their state. So we'll share you a couple of those groups that have information on it. And then uh, in addition, um, I would say uh, we're going to be following up with some more polling research to tell us better about what to be looking for and how to work on it. The last item, and I know I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth reiterating. Um, based on community, it really does matter. And black and brown communities, communities of color, we have a major problem in this country. There is a great deal of vaccine hesitancy. This is a long historic issue. Um, and we are dealing with that head on in large part because if communities of color, which have disproportionately been hit by COVID, don't engage and get the vaccinations that we need to see, um, we certainly don't anticipate you're gonna see the scale necessary to get that herd immunity that we're all looking for. I hope that helps. Yes, thanks, Scott. Uh, I think we Chad, can get, go ahead. Got time sorry, for another question. Well, I, I was just going to say, this is Terry Helvey. I'm with Moore Norman Technology Center. And I was on a statewide meeting yesterday where Dr. Watson, who is the chief uh, medical officer for Integris Health, shared a couple of three to five minute videos with us. Um, dispelling some of the myths and some of those things. And, and she was very, uh, she's going to send those out to us after our meeting. But I think if you'll check with Integris, maybe on their website, I'm not sure, but they have some really good ones that their doctors have done that are little short videos that we can show to our staff. Okay, great. That'd be great. We'll put that, yeah, we'll put that in. And there's some good um, links and some, some folks that are offering uh, help on the chat too. So we'll gather that up. Amber appears at Appreciate you doing that, and um, Jacqueline as well. Put some resources up there, so we'll put we'll compile that. And again, I think this is going to be a, an ongoing conversation between all of us about how to handle it the right way for the uh, for our employees and for the business community. So again, really wanted to thank Pharma for sponsoring. Uh, Courtney and Scott did a great job. Thank you for uh, for trying with our new ten and twenty format. You both did great. You get thumbs up, and I know for lawyers that's hard to do. So good for you, Courtney. Uh, Scott, a little easier for us, for us. but um, so uh, again, thanks for sponsoring Pharma and for our door prize winners, because, you know, everybody likes to win something. Uh, we've got three winners and I think they're here. I know I'm looking at one of them, Kermit Frank, you were, you were randomly selected. Congratulations, Kermit. Uh, Andrea Freimeyer and Nancy Rudge, and I think they're all here. Maybe Andrea, I didn't see you, but uh, again, uh, I think she's here. So Thank you all very much. Uh, wanted to let you know that this, this new kind of 10 and 20 format, we're gonna to try to give you quick updates of relevant information in, in a quick format. Uh, our next one is gonna be again with Matt Pinnell uh, on new opportunity for tourism in Oklahoma. I think that's gonna be interesting as we rethink what tourism looked like post COVID. Uh, that will be again on February 25th. And again, can't thank you all enough for your support of the chamber for joining us today. And again, uh, one last time to Pharma and to Courtney and Scott for, for presenting today. Thank you all very much. Look forward to seeing you in person soon and everybody stay safe.